Well, we are in week two of a sermon series entitled Back to the Bible. And that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that continually goes back to Scripture to discover what God calls us to to be faithful in the 21st century with the questions that continue to emerge. Last week, I talked about one big idea, uh, that the Bible isn't so much a book. Even though it's bound and has pages and page numbers, it's really more what is represented behind me by on the sh- these shelves. It's a, it's a library of books, 66 books, in fact, that were written by 40 authors or so over a, a span of about 1,600 years written in three different languages and different portions, different literary styles. It's important to know those distinctions. And one of the remarkable things about this library is that it isn't just a random collection of books that we say uh, people wrote about God. Our our confession is that we trust that these are inspired by God. That God, through the Holy Spirit, had uh, his hand in the process of developing this library. And I promised you more on the idea of that inspiration. We left last week with 2 Timothy 3. It's where we're going to pick up again if you want to open there right now. Uh, but I want to uh, talk about this question. What does it mean the Bible is inspired? What does it mean that it's God-breathed? And I hope today maybe we'll have a greater sense of what that means and how that affects our lives and what it calls us to. Let's pray as we open God's Word today. Oh God, I'm grateful for this uh, scripture, these words, these, this library, God, of people who uh, shared these books that were superintended and, and, and have been supervised by your Holy Spirit, have been breathed into. God, they have uh, formed our lives. This story has shaped us more than any other. And for those who are newer to it, God, I'm excited for the ways they'll continue to discover. And I pray that discovery wouldn't just happen for those new to it, but it would continue to happen for all of us who open its pages and are called into the life that you call us to live. God, thank you for your church that preserved this book. Thank you for uh, those who have commentated, God, and helped us understand this book, the deposit of faith you've passed on through the generations. Would you do it again today, God, as we look again at your word? I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching. It's the Christ be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles, like I said, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Through this series, I'm going to go back to this library to remind us where these books are. It's actually in the Pauline epistles or letters. It's one of the last books that uh, Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to set the context before I read these words. Paul is likely at the end of his life at this point. And uh, he's writing this letter to his protege. He's writing this letter to somebody uh, who he's trained up, who he's been on missionary journeys with. And he's written this letter so that, they, that he might pass on the faith once Paul is gone. In fact, Paul uh, is in prison, and it's, it, there's a good chance he's not going to get out. So he writes this letter to Timothy. I want you to hear these words of wisdom that Paul passes on to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, let's start in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now what is Paul saying in those verses? Paul is challenging Timothy to be faithful to the story of Jesus found in the Scriptures. He's challenging him to remember this deposit of faith that's been passed down. Paul references earlier in his letter to Timothy that that actually it was 
Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, that passed on this story. And then Paul taught him and mentored him. And then there was these Holy Scriptures that also mentored him in the faith. Now, when Paul mentions the Holy Scriptures, think for a moment about what that means. In those days, the New Testament hasn't been uh, pulled all together, right? Paul's writing, and he's referring back mostly probably to the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the Old Testament is what we refer to it as. And he's saying all those Scriptures were written, and they were inspired by God. And so uh, when, when Paul's saying this, he's referring to like the first five books, the Torah or the law. He's referring to the history of Israel. He's referring to the wisdom literature, and he, he's referring to the, the prophets. Uh, and, and, and he's trying to tell Timothy, continue to stay in these words. Paul wants Timothy's ministry to be sustained by the word of God found in the Bible. And, and the scriptures have sustained him. And then there's one key word I want to key in on in these verses that I think is really important as we try to uncover what it means that scripture is inspired. It's that word that's translated in a lot of translations, God breathed. In other translations, it's inspired. The Greek word that Paul uses is the word theopneustos. Theopneustos is uh, it's the only time we find this word in the entire Bible, in the New Testament. It's, it's not found anywhere else. And this is the only time, actually, uh, it's in the Bible. But, but beyond that, if you look at other Greek manuscripts and other works that are around that time, we don't find this word mentioned very often. Uh, some scholars actually think that Paul invented this word. He kind of combined two words, and that's what it is. It's a compound word. The, the first part, theos, means God, and the, and the second part, neustos, uh, means breathe. And, uh, and, and neustos is, comes from the same root word as where we translate spirit or Holy Spirit or breath or wind. It can mean several different things in the Greek. So what does it mean that the Bible is, as Paul says, God-breathed, inspired? My guess is most of us in the room uh, would make that claim. We as a church make that claim. We say, I just said it in our Discovering Greenville Oaks class a moment ago, we believe that Scripture is inspired by God, that it's the final authority in our life and practice as followers of God. But it's a pretty fuzzy word. It, it, it's not clearly defined in uh, 2 Timothy. And I think it's really important that we let, allow the Bible to define what it's supposed to mean and what it's supposed to be rather than uh, adding our interpretations to that. And so if I were to poll around this uh, room this morning or our first service, my guess is if, if, if many of us would make the claim that Scripture is inspired, we'd probably mean a lot of different things by that language. Uh, we'd probably describe that in different ways. And uh, if we pay attention to the Bible and the, how it behaves, we can at least deduce a few things about what God-breathed likely isn't. And uh, I share these with you, not because necessarily that all of us are going to come to agreement on these things. I know we come from different places, and, and that's okay. Uh, it's not a demand that you come to, to see things as I do. But as I've, I've grown, as I've looked at Scripture more closely, these are some things that have been helpful for me. Uh, because growing up, I guess the imagination I had about Scripture is that it was dictated by God. The, the imagination I had was like a the Caravaggio painting here, right? It's the Gospel of Matthew, his painting of how Matthew might have written the Gospel down. Caravaggio, this actually was a, a, a work that was destroyed because the church said, yeah, we don't really like that so much. So he developed a second one that's a little different, not so much holding the pen, but uh, the idea of, of maybe the Holy Spirit whispering into the ear of Matthew as, as he writes his Gospel. And as I've looked more at Scripture, that was what I started with. I don't know about you, that was the picture I had of how this came together. And yet, as I read Scripture, it doesn't seem as if that's really the case with all of it. It dictated in that sense. It does seem there are parts. Of course, the prophets, over and over again, it says, thus saith the Lord. And those parts, I, I'm, I'm assured that that's the, the prophet that's sharing the word that he, or, uh, he received from God. But not all the Bible reads that way. 
When Luke sets out to write his gospel, for instance, it's really interesting how he begins that, right? Luke sets out, and the thing is, Mark was the first gospel that was written, and and then Luke and Matthew come next, and then John is written near the end of the first century. And and as Luke writes his gospel, he talks at the very beginning of that gospel in chapter 1 about what he did in preparation for writing it. Really interesting what he says. Listen to this, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Isn't that interesting? Luke refers as if there are others that have written stories, gospels. He's done his homework. He's investigated carefully. And he decided to write an account in addition to others that were out there. There's a good chance scholars think that that Luke and Matthew probably had Mark as a source document. And kind of worked off of that. There's a lot that's similar in those Gospels. And then adds some from different witnesses that were shared or or other sources that were out there. Stories that have been passed on through the generations about who Jesus was. And and so it's interesting uh, when it comes to that. You can tell Luke takes care. Luke is a, is a doctor, and he writes with a different kind of Greek as others, and he takes care to research and to bring this all together to bring the story that's needed for the audience he speaks or writes to. Another uh, part where this happens actually comes in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. Uh, it's another one of those places that I think, man, I, I don't remember hearing this growing up. Paul's writing to the Corinthians about marriage. And he's been written a letter likely before this, or someone's come to him and said, there's some issues in the Corinthian church. We want you to write to it. So Paul does. He addresses different issues that are going on. And in 1 Corinthians 7, it's really interesting how he talks about marriage. Pay attention. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 12. He says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And he says, but to the rest, I say this, not, or I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Have you ever seen that before? It's really interesting, isn't it? So what Paul says is, okay, verse 10, uh, this is God speaking. This isn't me speaking. But he's real careful with what he says after that to say, hey, what I'm about to say, it's good advice, I think. It's tested by the Holy Spirit. God breathes into that. But this, this isn't from God. He lets God off the hook on this piece. If, if you've never read that before, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because what Paul's doing is he's admitting the humanity of his letter. He's, he's trying to give advice. And so when we allow the Bible to be to define God-breathed, it just doesn't seem as if all of it is dictated by God in the way that I imagined growing up. Now, the next one I want to make maybe a, a bit more challenging. As I read the Scriptures, and this is reflective of my own journey, God-breathed also doesn't mean that uh, the scriptures are without error. Now listen closely to what I'm going to say. Now the technical word for that is inerrant. And that's a pretty big word. It's a really important word to people who value scripture and take it seriously. So I want to be careful about how I talk about this for the next few minutes. The assumption behind inerrancy is this. In order for the Bible to be the word of God, inspired by God, sourced by God, the Bible has to be without error. Without scientific error, without historical error, without chronological error. Because it is from God, it must be perfect. And and all that depends on how you define perfect. But one way it's interpreted by some is that uh, if it's inspired by God, it must be without error. It must be an error in every way. 
Now, my problem with this is, when you read the Bible carefully, you do find some details that don't always square up with the assumption that there aren't going to be errors in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is a drawing of uh, ancient cosmology that some have done, done and derived from the way they would have looked at the world before kind of new world science comes in after the Enlightenment, especially back to the ancient Near East at that time. Uh, this is probably how the writers of Scripture would have seen the world. It was believed in that time that there was a dome uh, in the sky that actually held back the waters that were above. You think about rain coming down and not being able to see the world. Does that make sense? There'd be rain that'd be held out till the rains come down. And, and actually below the earth, there would be Sheol or, or the underworld. So it's like a three-tiered universe. There's the heavens, and then there's the earth, and then there's the, the underworld. And the Bible uh, in, in, in the Old Testament doesn't seem to kind of correct those, uh, those ideas. It, it doesn't set out new science. It doesn't give a 21st century perspective of things. They're seeing things as they uh, understand in their science at that time. And God doesn't seem to make much of an effort to correct those understandings. And in reality, if he corrected its 21st century standards, there will be a day where we're probably wrong about a lot of things. That's what science offers to us. We think, though, that because the Bible's from God, it must be perfect. And, th- and that all depends, again, how we define perfect. This shows up, uh, if you read Scripture, in some places, in Genesis, uh, in Job, in places, in, in the Psalms. And this is the ancient view of cosmology. But we don't see that if we were to look at that in our classrooms that we teach our kids, do we? We see the world differently because of what we've been able to develop and how science has progressed. So we have a scientific understanding of the way the world is put together now, and, and this seems a little outdated. Another example comes in Mark chapter 11. I actually want to pick up a couple of books because this shows up in two Gospels. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's the last week uh, of his life. And in, in Mark chapter 11, he goes and he curses a fig tree. Maybe you remember this story, right? And after he curses the fig tree, he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he, he creates this, you know, he cleanses the temple. And uh, what's interesting is that's the way Mark records the story. But if you look over in in Matthew, in Matthew 21, the order is reversed. Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. And then he goes and he curses the fig tree. Now, uh, some have tried to kind of put this together to say, well, maybe Jesus cursed it on both sides of it, right? Which is one interpretation. It's not which either gospel kind of reveals that there's two of those. And I don't think Jesus goes around all the last week of his life cursing fig trees everywhere, right? Now, there's a theological point to this that that the writers of the Gospels are trying to make. And that is that these trees, these fig trees, aren't bearing fruit, and they need to be cursed. That's what Jesus is doing. And when he goes into the temple, he's trying to make a similar statement. When this, This temple's not bearing fruit like it should. And that means that he needs to cleanse that temple, and in some ways curses the word that's there. Either way you read it, these events are to be read as a commentary on each other, the fig tree and this cleansing of the temple. Either way, there's not really a theological significance to before or after. But it appears that at least to Mark and to Matthew, that chronology isn't near as important in their narrative and gospel as it is in the way we pull it together in history books today. Um, And then you get to John's gospel. And John, of course, was written later and, and didn't, depend on the source of Mark probably as much as the others did. And and John puts that cleansing story, not the end of the story, but in John chapter 2. Because John's writing to an audience trying to make a point, and it's not so important the chronology. Again, that's how our Western kind of enlightened, after the Enlightenment minds work, but that doesn't seem to be near as important or a problem for those who are the early readers of Scripture. And these different accounts are in books of the Bible that are inspired by God, or, or this one. 
Matthew 27 cites a word from the prophet Jeremiah. I'll see if I can find Matthew here for a moment. So Matthew cites a, a prophecy, and Matthew does this all throughout his gospel. He talks about the fulfillment that Jesus comes to bring. And, and he cites a word from the prophet Jeremiah. This comes in Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10. It says there, Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used to buy uh, them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. That's a great verse. It's tied into Judas and the 30 pieces of silver. This is a fulfillment. The problem is, it's not in Jeremiah. It's in Zechariah, if you go back and look. And, and I guess my question is, is it possible that Matthew, good old human being that he was, got his prophets mixed up as he's writing the story? And just like you do, just like I'll do before the sermon's finished today, let's be honest, one word is in your head, and you say or write another. Again, a human error in the Bible, a collection that's inspired and breathed by God. Let's assume just for a moment, whether, whether I'm right about this or not, that Matthew got it wrong. That he named the wrong prophet in the story. Is that a problem for the rest of Scripture? If we pull that card out, does that mean we can't trust in the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, these are just a few examples. The Bible has many more that I could point to that I may point to later in this sermon. If we see the Bible in a certain kind of way, this can be really problematic and a challenge. But what I want to say next hopefully will build your faith about what God breathed means in light of what Scripture tells us. Again, it depends how you uh, get this idea of what Paul means when he says Scripture is God breathed. Now, if God breathed means that the Bible must be without error, then we could have a problem here. Because if you're a biblicist, someone who bases their faith on the Bible being inerrant, it's a huge problem. So you'll come across people who will go to great lengths and do great mental gymnastics to try to show there's actually no problem here. There's no contradiction. But what sometimes that looks like is it turns into the same game that many atheists play when they talk about Scripture and these problems. And they point out and say, well, if this is wrong and this is wrong, how can you claim that's an inspired book? And all of a sudden, some of our kids that we send off to college can lose their faith in a science class or someone who points out these discrepancies but isn't handed a faith that can withstand those challenges. So there are atheists who are are gaining ammunition for their perspective, and they see these names and these errors, and they jump up and down, and they say, see, look, you can't trust it. And I want you to notice that both the biblicist and the atheist have the same assumptions about what it means to say that the Bible is inspired. They're both working with the same expectations. They both expect a God-breathed collection of books to not have any errors or discrepancies. But perfect, in the way we moderns define perfection, is the way they think about that. We have certain standards for what we can call historically accurate and scientifically accurate. What's interesting is inerrant is not a word you can find in the Bible. It's not a way it describes itself. Inerrant is a word that we've laid on top of it with our expectations that we bring. That's the word we laid over the Bible as if to say if it's from God, it must be what we said it must be. Now, why does this matter? Consider the scenario with me. Newlywed couple comes home after their honeymoon. They've had this great trip to part of our country that's a beautiful part, and they, they, they show up, they, they get back from their honeymoon, it's time to go back to work and get back to regular life, and so the husband you know, gets into bed, they get into bed together, and he uh, turns the lights out, sets his alarm for, for 6 a.m., and says to his new wife, well, I'm going to get up at 6, can you have breakfast ready at 6.30? In the dark, he says to his new wife, excuse me? 
In the dark, he says, uh, well, mom always had breakfast ready for dad. I mean, eggs and bacon and toast and biscuits. Like, that's how this works, right? And uh, then all of a sudden, he hears the cover shuffle, and, uh, and, and there's a click. The light comes on, and his new wife is sitting up in bed, and he realizes uh, they're not going to be going to bed at that moment. You ever heard the phrase, expectations are nothing more than premeditated disappointments, resentments? See, one of the reasons the Bible has become a stumbling block for people who want to take Christ seriously but keep struggling with the Bible, what the Bible says and how it says it, I believe are the expectations that we bring to the Bible for what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be read and how it works. i got to tell you, I'm becoming more and more uh, convinced and concerned and passionate about this because I've got three kids of my own who are growing up and I'm doing everything I can to pass off faith to them. I want nothing more for than for them to come to see the Bible as the Word of God and Jesus as Lord and for them to be baptized in His name. Holly and I have been praying that prayer for a long time, and my guess is I'm not the only one in the room. A lot of you are parents, and you desire the same. Some of you are grandparents and great-grandparents, and you desire the same thing for your kids. And as a father, I don't want to set them up for an unnecessary faith crisis. Because I'm teaching them to expect certain things from the Bible that the Bible never tells us to expect from them. I mean, life is hard enough on its own, and there will be enough crises of faith without me pushing some theory about how to read the Bible on them that may cause them to give up faith thanks to a professor one day that wants to point out a small discrepancy because of our expectations in the 21st century. And what I'm suggesting is that we go back to the Bible then we ought to accept the real scriptures that God has provided to us as they are, rather than ungratefully and stubbornly forcing scripture to be something that it is not because of a theory of inspiration that we've placed on the text. Are you with me this morning? So let's go back to what Paul says to Timothy again in 2 Timothy. uh, Let's try to figure out what he may mean. I've talked about what it may not mean, but what might it mean when he says that scripture is God-breathed? And I want you to hear this same passage I'm going to read to you in light of what I've shared and in light of the context uh, of what he's saying. Watch the way that God breathed scripture functions. Let's read it again. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what does Paul say in those verses? It's really important for us to see. He says, first of all, the scriptures are able. They're capable. What are they capable for? Well, Paul tells us. They're capable of making you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. They're able to do that. And then he goes on and he says, all scripture is God-breathed. And then he says, it's useful. This is the function. It's useful for what? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be built up. So what I take from these verses is Paul says, scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed for a purpose. What are those purposes? Two things. To lead you to Jesus, to make you wise for salvation, and to train you in righteousness to become mature. In summary, we can trust the Bible is fully inspired to lead us to Jesus and to look more like him as we're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do we come to the Bible expecting? 
Well, in that format, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a modern, historically, scientifically, chronologically accurate account by 21st century standards. That's not the game God's playing. This isn't a science book. It's not what it's intended to be. And we make unnecessary enemies out of science and faith when we play that game. Now, we come to the, the Bible believing these words, breathed by God, can teach us to come to Jesus to find salvation in his name and to be transformed into his image. Paul doesn't worry about the term God breathed. He doesn't define it perfectly. He's interested more in showing us what a God breathed scripture does, how it functions, what it's there to do. And he says clearly, it's there to lead us to salvation, to make us wise, and to train us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and all those things to look more like Jesus. I don't have a technical definition I can give you this morning of what God breathed means. And Paul doesn't give you one either. But I can share an image from Scripture that's been helpful to me. It's actually one that I shared with you a a couple of weeks ago about this God-breathed idea. You remember I talked about uh, the disciples being sent in the series called The Way. And I I talked about how breath uh, plays a role in different parts of Scripture. So I want to grab two Scriptures I mentioned to you that day. It's in Genesis and Ezekiel. Genesis chapter 2 and Ezekiel 37 talk about God's breath. And and they talk about what it means that Scripture breathes or or that, that God breathes and what happens when God chooses to do that. So in Genesis 2-7, pay attention to what happens when God breathes. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You see, it's the breath of God that gives life to what God breathes into. It brings life where there wasn't life before. Ezekiel 37, I want you to notice there in verse 5 what it says the breath of God does. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. What does it mean to say that the scriptures are God breathed? What does it mean to open our Bibles and and read ancient words written thousands of years ago in languages that most of us don't understand that have been translated uh, time and time again? What does it mean when we open the scriptures? And what is God doing when we read those words and Jesus becomes real to us and we receive this information? What are we to understand and how are we transformed? What is God doing exactly? What I would suggest this morning is that God is breathing on these words. He's taking things that are dead and he's bringing them to life. And it's the breath of God that brings them to life. Were were, were they alive when they were written? Was the Spirit doing things at that point? Yes, of course. Scripture's God breathing the moment I believe that it's written. But I also believe that that continuing power breathes life into us as we continue to read it. And you've experienced this before, haven't you? Where you come to a text you've read over and over and over again, and all of a sudden you realize something new comes. Because God continues to breathe life into our lives through Scripture. It's about our expectations. What do you think is supposed to happen when you take the Bible this library, seriously. And what I would suggest is that Christ becomes real. Jesus saves us through his name. That's what scripture is inspired to do, and it's inspired also to train us in righteousness. There's a great story that's told in in the Gospel of Luke, if I can find that around here with all my library. This is what my office looks like, usually while I'm prepping sermons too, right? Luke, uh, I come to this story in, in Luke, and it's the story of these disciples after the resurrection that are, are, I'm sorry, after the crucifixion. They've been in Jerusalem, and they're devastated and seem to be walking back to a place they've known before, giving up on this whole Jesus guy. And they're on this, this road, and they're walking to Emmaus. And they're brokenhearted, when all of a sudden a stranger walks up to them. And the stranger be- begins to uh, tell the story 
through the scriptures of how all of this that happened to Jesus was foretold. The Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, were to tell about what would happen, to give expectations about that, about a resurrected and crucified Savior. Listen to these words, Luke 24, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day? Where Jesus goes and he, he, he opens up the Torah and he says, I want you to show, show you where this all came from and why I'm here. And then he goes to the history books and he points out how this foretold. And then he goes to the wisdom literature and he goes to the prophets in particular and he says, all these things were to be fulfilled. Imagine what it would be like to sit in front of Jesus and to hear those scriptures that God breathes into, explained by Jesus to say, this was always the plan. This is always what it was pointing to. In other words, Jesus is doing exactly but Paul later will say the scriptures are intended to do. They're to make us wise for salvation. They're to point us to Jesus. But, but even then, that's not enough because they don't recognize him at that point after he's described the scriptures. So later on, they come to the place where they're going to go for an evening meal and they invite the stranger, still not knowing it's Jesus, into their home for a meal at the table. And I want to read from Luke 24, verses 30 to 32 about what happens at that table. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love the connection that's here. But Jesus has described the scriptures, but ultimately, when are their eyes open? Their eyes are open when they come to the table and the bread is broken. An act that Jesus has done when he multiplies the loaves and when he was there at the Last Supper, Jesus breaks the bread before and it's as if their eyes just notice in that moment, boy, weren't our hearts burning within us? This is the crucified Savior. And it's in the breaking of the bread that Jesus is revealed to us. And yet when Jesus is revealed to us, we remember what the scriptures say. It says it's a mystery. How this works is mysterious. And some mysteries, as hard as this is for those of us who are Westerners to believe, some mysteries aren't meant to be solved. They're meant to be received. The mystery of how Christ could be fully human and fully divine is not something we can understand. It's something we receive and we trust in for salvation. And the mystery of how the Bible could be written by humans and inspired by God is a mystery. Not a mystery that we can solve and pinpoint. I can't explain it to you, but it's a mystery that we receive that leads us to faith. And how Jesus is revealed and what we're about to do at communion. after We sing one song up here together. How Jesus is revealed is when this bread and this cup are broken, when we drink them, And somewhere in the midst of that, Christ becomes our host at the table in some mysterious way. Jesus is revealed through the breaking of bread. And it's a mystery, but this morning we don't take communion. We never take communion. We receive communion. There's a difference in there, that idea of taking things and receiving with open hands. So every time we go to the table, Jesus is there breaking the bread. And every time we open the Bibles, as people have done through the centuries, Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit breathes again. And in just a moment, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. Followers of Jesus have been doing this for 2,000 years. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember Jesus' death, death and we celebrate his resurrection. And in the end, this mysterious meal often opens eyes. And that's our prayer today. We're about to sing a song about opening our eyes, that God would do that in our day and in our age. And it wouldn't just be uh, in in moments where miraculous mountaintop experiences happen in our lives, but it happens in those surprising moments. It happens in the mundane moment that happens every day in our doors when we take communion, that God would open our eyes 
his grace, to his mercy, to the salvation that he offers, and to the training in righteousness he wants to do.